We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Wednesday, June 6th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, well, we're going to be joined by the American Legion, as we are every Wednesday. This time, it's going to be Gerardo Avila, and he's going to tell us about cemetery and burial benefits. I know, I know. It's not something you want to think about first thing in the morning on a Wednesday. You're driving into work, hoping for a good day, and I'm telling you how you might be buried at a state or National Veteran Cemetery, but it's important stuff, and you don't want to leave it to your family after you're gone to figure out what you wanted. There's actually some things you can do to start making preparations for that day that you take off the uh, the uniform of life, as it were. And we're going to talk to Gerardo about all of that, uh, the cemetery benefits, how it's going, and he's testifying, I believe, tomorrow on Capitol Hill about these very benefits with the National Cemetery Administration, which is part of the VA. And we are uh, going to talk to him about that in just a little bit. Also today, filmmaker B.J. Golnick, director of Almost Home star of Almost Home as well, is going to join us to talk about his short film, why he decided to make it, and what the response has been to it. Now, if you haven't heard of Almost Home, well, don't worry. It's only become available to the public over the last week or so, and I heard about it because former guest and friend of the show, Tim Kennedy, Army uh, Special Forces operator. We just talked to him a couple weeks ago about when he waterboarded himself on social media and why he did that. Tim tweeted out on Memorial Day, hey, this Memorial Day, check out this film from my friend BJ Golding. It may have actually been on Instagram that I saw it. It was one of the two, Twitter or Instagram. So I thought, you know what? If Tim Kennedy makes a recommendation of a short film uh, on Memorial Day in honor of Memorial Day, I'm going to check it out. So I did. And after I watched this I don't know, 15 minute or so short film, I knew I had to talk to the guy who had made it happen and find out the story of Almost Home, which is, uh, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's the the story of uh, of Marines. And one of them, uh, one of the two main characters uh, doesn't make it home, and one of them does. And it's about the, uh, I guess, the difficulties that come along with that. So we're going to talk to BJ Golnick about his wonderful film coming up just a little bit later in the show. But first, let's bring Jake Hughes into the conversation. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? Uh, not so great. So, yeah, uh, I heard. Anytime my wife travels, I just don't sleep as well. Um, I, I don't know what time I finally fell asleep last night. I was having some stomach issues. I wasn't sleeping. So I think it was... 3 o'clock, 3.30 or something like that when I finally fell asleep and I wake up at 5 every morning. So, you know, you do the math. Hour and a half, two hours of sleep, which, of course, I can function on. I've done it, done a lot more on a lot less sleep, but yep. it just doesn't feel good. And when you're sitting in traffic, you're like, you know, I've stopped for a minute here. Could I take a little quick nap? Would that be okay? <laughs> am I going to make it if I take a little nap here? People will beep at me. It'll wake me up. But, of course, I didn't do that. Uh, I made it in and... 
You know, it's just uh, just a long night, but oh well, it's a new day, and as uh, as soon as I get all my work done today, I'll just try to go home and uh, do my napping them. But before any of that, I need to talk about today, Jake. This is a day that is a big one in the history of the United States, in the history of the world. On the 6th of June, 1944, the Allies invaded Normandy, France during Operation Overlord. Of course, one of the touchstone moments of World War II, which is uh, you know, when we made our initial steps into mainland Europe. And uh, this is now 74 years since that took place, which we're just talking off air. If someone lied about their age and was 16, which is probably about the average age of the person who lied about their age. There were some who were younger. Uh, remember, this was a different era. You could fake documents. It was a lot easier. Also, the amount of people that were required for World War II uh, made those recruiting offices a little bit less worried about who exactly it was that was going in. So let's say someone lied about their age and was 16 years old when they took part in D-Day. They would now be 90. Yeah, it's 90 years old. It's weird to think that, you know, the quote unquote greatest generation, they're getting up there and it's like it's someday, maybe sooner rather than later, they'll all be gone. And yeah. it's up to us to remember these days. Well, of course, it was in our lifetime that the last World War One veteran passed away. Uh, and of course, World War One ending uh, 100 years ago in 1918 is when World War One came to an end. Uh, the U.S. involvement began in 1917. We were there for uh, a little bit over a year. Now, of course, that was followed by World War II, which came along only 23 years later. So, you know, if the last World War I veteran died, and I think it was 10 years ago or something like that, uh, you've got to figure that you've probably got somewhere in the vicinity of 15, 20 years until there's no World War II veterans left. Now, you do have... Uh, the uh, added numbers of who was in World War II, which makes it more likely that there will be some outlier who makes it, you know, 115 years or, you know, one of those people who just who, who lives forever. But there are fewer and fewer of the World War II generation left with us every day. And it's on days like today when you start reading through, you, you know, I know a lot about D-Day. I've researched World War II, World War One. It's, it's one of my history is one of my passions. When on these days you see some story and you just click on it like, oh, it looks interesting, and you look at it, you start regaining an appreciation for what those young men did who were storming the beaches of Normandy because, I, you know, it, it's so long ago now and what they did was so incredible that I think we have, we have this tendency to think of them as, as not even real, you know, like it wasn't a real thing that happened. That, no, that's a movie. That's Saving Private Ryan. That's something that, you know, my my grandfather or my oldest uncles or something like that. I mean, one of my grandfathers uh, did fight in World War One, or sorry, World War Two. He was a Navy CB. Um, my other one was actually uh, too old and had a family and a farm at that point, and he's the one that's still alive. Go figure. But, wow. Yeah, so the the problem, I think, is that we we have difficulty grasping the scope of World War Two. How big everything was. I mean, I believe, I, I mean, we, we lost so many people. How many people did we lose at the Normandy landing? I want to make sure that I get this number right because I don't want to throw out some incorrect number. Uh, casualties and losses, 4,414 confirmed dead on June 6, 1944. That's 
4,000 in one day. One of the deadliest days in American military history. Not the deadliest day. Um, that would be, of course... Uh, Was it Iwo Jima or Iwo Jima no, Midway? And, no, Civil War. Uh, and, oh, right. Yeah, because right. both sides and all that stuff. So uh, Antietam, I think, is the deadliest day in, in U.S. history or uh, or very close to it. Then, of course, Iwo Jima was, was very bad. I mean, there were a lot of... of uh, there were a lot of just massive battles during World War II that in this era where, I mean, you know, you can look at... Um, you can look at something like Operation Iraqi Freedom. You were over in Iraq there, right? Yep. So Twice. there you go. And we had, I'm trying to look, uh, da, 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 killed 4,497 Americans were killed during Operation Iraqi Freedom. So in that war, which lasted for, uh, what was it, nine years or something like that? No longer uh, than that. It started in 2003. No, eight years, 2003 to 2011. Oh. So officially eight years, eight months, 28 days. You had almost the exact same number of people killed as you did in one day of World War II, D-Day. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so difficult to wrap your head around and understand this. And, and think about the fact that while you may think of D-Day as Tom Hanks storming the beach or John Wayne or all this stuff, no, these were your regular soldiers, that were just coming over. You're right. Your sailors that were driving those flat boats in. You imagine being one of the guys driving those uh, those transport ships up to the beach. You have zero weapons, zero ways to defend yourself, and you don't have any sort of maneuverability. The people who get out onto the beach, they at least have you know the possibility of moving out of the way of the fire coming from those cliffs above the beaches of Normandy. If you're in one of those boats, man. <laughs> just go in and hope for the best. I mean, that's all there is to it. Yeah, and can you, I mean, I know this was shown in Saving Private Ryan, but can you imagine being one of those sailors driving the boat and you drop the ramp and almost the entire boat is mowed down by machine gun fire? Oh, and that and, happened to a lot of them. Yeah, and you, this is the thing is like people think of D-Day as, I mean, could because we won the war and we eventually won the day, as a matter of fact, right. they think it's some big heroic event. But really, it was this brutal slog to work up that beach. Yeah. And it was, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's both heroic and tragic. Well, it was. And it was um, also very uh, opportunistic. And we got a little bit lucky. We... The Germans didn't think that we were going to come that direction. They did not think the amphibious landing was going to be at Normandy, so they did not have the top-level German troops. There were top-level units there. There were there were you know very very strong uh, German military units there, but it wasn't the the brunt of their force. That's not where they were thinking we were going to land for various reasons. There was all sorts of espionage going on and trickery, and they put uh, in England they would put. Um, fake aircraft to uh, make them think that, oh, this is where they're staging everything. It, it's crazy when you start doing the research into it, to everything that went on. But very fortuitous that that wasn't where they thought we were because look at those deaths that were there. And if you had the the elite German forces guarding Normandy, uh, it would have been even worse than that. And of course, you know, D-Day for some people who don't read a lot of history, don't know a lot of history, they might think of, you know, saving Private Ryan and hey, and then Tom Hanks and Matt Damon won the war at the end when they killed those guys in that. 
No, D-Day was the beginning of the end. That's when the Allied forces made their way into Europe. And then you still had uh, the Battle of the Bulge, you know, where you would have uh, just uh, horrifying conditions in the wintertime where the army essentially stalled out. And it was kind of a, uh, a stalemate between the Germans and the Allies. And Patton's forces finally pushed through. And you, you had Operation Market Garden still to come up in the uh, the Netherlands. There was so much more still going on. But again, because of how much there was, it's difficult for someone who's not incredibly interested in it like me to get their head deep into it and start looking around and figuring out all the stuff that happened. Unless maybe if you watch Band of Brothers, which I highly recommend you check out. Oh, yes. That's, of course, the Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg produced uh, World War II European theater uh, miniseries. It was on HBO. I have it on DVD someplace and then also... I watch it probably about once a year. It's really well done. And as you go back through that show, uh, very interesting cast when you start realizing like, oh, wow, that's the guy from Snatch. Hey, that's Simon Pegg from Shaun of the Dead. Hey, that's Jamie Bamber, a.k.a. Apollo from the new Battlestar Galactica. Like there's all sorts of people in there that you don't realize at the time, including what's the most recent, the Alien Covenant yeah. Did you see that one? Yeah. The guy who plays the the robot, the German, I think he's a German guy. Is it Michael Schumacher? No, I don't know. Anyway, there's uh, there's all sorts of really interesting people that you don't realize were in Band of Brothers that have now made it big, and you go back and you're like, oh, oh, look at that. <laughs> I did not know that Simon Pegg from Shaun of the Dead and uh, Hot Fuzz and all those movies was in there. And you'll learn a lot about the length of time that they were there and the constant moving forward from one battle to the next and you know just having uh, very little downtime in between uh, it was it was it was the the biggest war in world history world war ii was a fascinating horrifying occurrence and when you start looking at the numbers again four thousand four hundred and uh, uh four th- over four thousand four hundred killed on d-day americans alone and then, of course, when you look at the entirety of the eight-year Operation Iraqi Freedom, you have 4,497 American soldiers killed there. So 4,497, and then looking over at, uh, just to get these specific numbers, 4,414. So the numbers are almost the same. Again, one year versus eight years. And for those of us in this current era of veterans, think about how bad Operation Iraqi Freedom was at its worst point. And realize that in one day, just one day in World War II, D-Day, was uh, as bad as all of those bad days in Iraq put together. Yeah, you got to think that World War II in its entirety was so horrible that we realized as a species almost that we can't really do this again. That's when we said, well, I mean... We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we realized that, that this kind of multi-country, multinational conflicts are just so horrifying and especially now with you know yeah. i mean that's what well this like the impetus of like the uh the united nations and stuff where we try to handle things differently they, there's some of that i mean I, they realized that in world war one europe was decimated the problem was when the treatise after this, uh, you know the armistice ending world war one was signed it basically uh <laughs> it was used as a way of revenge on the Germans and others that pushed them into economic and other sorts of collapses and, and everything that World War One is what caused World War II. You can almost consider them the same war, except there were different, of course, governments in charge of different countries at different times. 
I think the thing that's kept that from happening again is more the deterrence of nuclear weapons. That's true. Because of the first time that was used. Although we didn't use them in Europe, but it's also, I don't know, there's a lot of extreme people here with a lot of extreme beliefs. And, I, you know, could I see something like that happening again on that scale? Boy, I hope not, because with the weapons that we have today, it would be probably just as deadly. You know, the superpowers all going at it. Uh, and it would probably be over a lot faster, despite the fact that it would be just as deadly. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 an important day to remember and to remember that these were 18, 19, 20 year old kids. This wasn't John Wayne. This wasn't Tom Hanks. This wasn't the movies that you've seen of D-Day. These were real people being put into I mean, just an awful situation. Think about how many of them. And again, you see it in Saving Private Ryan and many of the other films that uh, that show a realistic version of the normandy landings where they drop down the uh the gate on the front of the uh the troop transport boats and boom that's it they're hit by fire nobody can get their guys are jumping over the side they got too much gear when they're too deep so they drown in the water i mean there were so many horrifying things that they went through but you know what they went through them and they got the job done and they kept pushing and going and pushing and going and uh you know, one of the important things I think also that when we talk about Band of Brothers, um, what it shows is the other side of D-Day. Of course, you have the, the landings on the beach. You also had the paratroopers that were jumping yep. in behind the lines. Really, the first time that that was ever used in such a fashion in warfare, and as shown again in Band of Brothers, wasn't carried out and executed exactly as they would have liked it to have been. Uh, they, they landed in the wrong place, essentially. A lot of units got split up. Uh, but it was, you know, a big advancement where it really a lot was going on there. A lot of unique things began on June 6, 1944, 74 years ago today. So our thanks to those young men on the beaches of Normandy for everything that they did. Now, Jake... Brought this up to you earlier, and you said that you had seen it, and this is being uh, reported by the Military Times. It's in the military culture section. The Taliban's new punk rock uniforms. Oh, now, yes. I don't know exactly how to describe these, but I'll give it a shot. So they have balaclavas on with uh, headbands that seem to have uh, some writing in Arabic on them, uh, similar to like Muqtada al-Sadr's army did, except they're black, not green, around the balaclava. They're wearing uh, black T-shirts that say, no tension, with two white handguns <laughs> pointing outwards. They have what appear to be studded leather fingerless gloves on, um, oh my very much like something you might see in a video from Rat or Cinderella or any number of hair metal bands from 30 years ago. Then they have what looked to me to be, I can't tell, but just looking at the photo. So they're wearing an old woodland pattern camouflage pants of some sort. To me, they look like sweatpants. <laughs> they look like they're <laughs> camouflage sweatpants. And part of the reason I think that is because whatever type of pants these are, they are tucked in to knee-high white and tan socks. So this is this is I I know it sounds a uh, uh, pretty awesome as I read it out to you. And when you see the pictures, I think it's even more awesome than you might think that it is. Uh, and then those are topped off by matching. 
I'm not sure, but perhaps L.A. gear or British Knights high-top sneakers. Certainly a late 80s, early 90s high-top sneaker is what we're seeing here. And the reason that I think that they're sweatpants is because if you tuck uh, your, let's let's say you're wearing your ACU or whatever, you tuck those pants into a sock, it, it kind of bunches up. Like it doesn't yeah. compress very well, that material. These compress very well, like a sweatpant does when it's tucked into your socks. And sweatpants are active wear, and these 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 gentlemen look uh, like they're going, planning to be very active. The, 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 very there, fabulous. There are screenshots that come from, uh, I think, oh, yeah, okay. So this is actually, I think, from the, uh, <laughs> this is from a propaganda video. So, you know, of course, ISIS and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda all have their own, uh, like, YouTube channels, essentially, and put this stuff out. These guys... I, I don't even I don't even know what to say about this picture at the top. I'm so intimidated by picture men wearing those outfits again, studded leather gloves, uh, woodland camo sweatpants tucked into knee high socks, and wearing I swear to God they look like a pair of like 1991 British Knights high tops. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking you replace the high tops with combat boots, and they sound like and look like the most boot private you've ever seen in your life at the px with his pants tucked in and his shirt dog tucked tags in. hanging out oh, oh yeah and yeah, yeah. the, the no tension that's like the absolute most ridiculous unit motto you know <laughs> parody of grunt style you could think of <laughs> hey relax guys <laughs> no tension no We're tension good. i would have some tension if i were you uh, you're gonna stick out a little bit in your silly little uniforms but the, the picture, the screenshot that Military Times has from the propaganda video is incredible because there are two columns of them lined up, two columns of four, uh, one on the left, one on the right, and they're standing there, hands on the hips, like the old George Reeves Superman. Like Lord of the Dance. No, no, no. This is more like, I'm telling you, do you remember when you were a kid, the reruns of the old Superman from yeah. like the 50s with George Reeves? You know how at the end of every episode he was standing on the hill and had like his hands on his hips and the flag was blowing in the it looks like that, but they're standing on some garbagey dirt road in Afghanistan with a uh, you know, they got a stack of uh, AKs in front of them and they have um <laughs> they, they they have other pictures of the one of them uh <laughs> if if you think someone can't look ridiculous anymore then oftentimes you figure out that they can. So they have the same two columns. Now they all have handguns and they're in the, you know, the firing pose, correct firing pose, which isn't as cool looking as the ones you see in TVs and movies. So, uh, you know, they, they've got that, but they're all in a line. So it looks like each one in the back of the one of Fritz about to shoot him in the head. And then they've got a guy in the... The middle in between the two columns with some sort of flag. Of course, there's no wind. They're in a valley in Afghanistan, and there's no wind blowing this flag. So it's just limply hanging there. It's clearly got writing on it, but you can't see what the writing is. Also, the guy with the flag, I'm pretty sure he got that job because he's incredibly bow-legged. So I don't know if he's capable of like running like the other ones are. But it doesn't matter. He's going to be the point guy because... Everybody except for the last two in those columns is going to be dead as soon as they shoot in this position they're in. So you've got I just that. picture like Charlie's Angels, you know. Oh, it, 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 it's it's like that, but they're they're aiming forwards towards the guy in front of them. So you're like, this is this is a uh, oh boy, this is something. Then there's a picture of them being instructed at class. So you know they've got their headbands on and their shirts. Also say no tension on the back and looking at 
They're doing accident avoidance courses? Um, yeah. <laughs> listen, guys. Anti-terrorism. You've got to wear the PPE, you know? <laughs> Anti-terrorism awareness. Listen, if we don't do PMS on our headbands, the headbands, they're just not going to work after a while, man. <laughs> you got to make sure. if you Listen, you need to clean your headband when you're done. You need to oil it properly. Do you want it getting stuck in your balaclava? No, you don't. So clean it out. All right. Uh, okay, everybody, we're going to do a field day. So pick up some of these rocks and dirt and move them over to that rocks and dirt. And there we go. Um, I'm just picturing some a Taliban command sergeant major screaming at each other. Why are your defense not tucked in properly? This it it this is it's it's incredibly ridiculous. I mean, these are people who want to kill Americans, so we don't need to lose sight of that. But I guess this is what it's like. It's like they watched like a mid '90s skateboarding video and thought, like that guy, <laughs> man, he's intimidating. You know, it, it's like uh, like Mike Vallely or somebody. They've got his fashion sense. And looking at the picture of them at their um, at their mandatory training, there as they sit there with the uh, well, they've got a whiteboard, not a PowerPoint. If they have PowerPoint, oh god, oh just PowerPoint and some. Uh, hey, ah. Uh, Hey man, can you get? It's not working. I'm clicking and it's not going to the side. I got, I got, got to be able to tell you uh, how we're going to overthrow the American capitalist pigs. You know, we got to get them. Um, this is, uh, it's fascinating. And the shirts do say "No Tension" on the back too, just in case you were worried that when you were behind them, you would think maybe tension. No, no tension. None whatsoever. Says right on the back of the shirt. Well, no tension here either. You're listening to the morning briefing on Entercom's ConnectingVets.com, Connecting Vets every day. Be sure to give us a, uh, a click and a follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, where we are at Connecting Vets, and you'll find all the great content being put out by our amazing team of veterans, including myself, Eric Day, and your host, Jake Hughes, your producer, and still to come on the show, well... In just a few minutes, we're going to hear from Gerardo Avila from the American Legion. He's going to talk to us about cemetery and burial benefits. And then later, we are going to have BJ Golding, filmmaker and director of Almost Home. Stick around. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing Wednesday edition here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. That's our slogan because it's what we do, and we do it with a team of veterans. Each and every member of the ConnectingVets.com team knows what it's like to have served, knows what it's like to have taken off that uniform when they finish serving, and that's why they are working tirelessly each and every day to bring you the information that veterans need, the information that veterans want, the information that veterans might not know about but could benefit them greatly. And the best way for you to be kept abreast of everything that they and me are doing is follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Every Wednesday, we are joined by one of the oldest, one of the largest, one of the greatest veteran service organizations in the history of the United States. Some might say in the history of the world. I'm speaking, of course, of the American Legion. And joining us today from the Legion is Gerardo Avila, Deputy De Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation. Gerardo, good morning. How are you today? 
Hey, good morning. Doing well. How are you doing? I am doing fantastically well. And for those who are unfamiliar with you, let's just talk about Gerardo Avila for a couple of minutes here. So you are a veteran yourself. Now tell us a little bit about your service. When you joined, where you served, what you did. Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so I graduated high school in 91 and I knew that I wanted to come in. Uh, joined right after graduation. Uh, served for 21 years. Retired in 2012. I kind of ended up in the area with some family here and had a job offer with the American Legion. I've been with the American Legion for five years, uh, assisting in different areas, uh, but yes. After 21 years of service, it can be difficult for people to transition because it's been your way of life for over two decades. When you think back to that period of time in your life when you took off that uniform for the last time, what do you remember most about it? Was it an easy transition for you? Did you have some difficulty? No, I think it's difficult. Is uh, you have to focus on not only finding a new job. Uh, for me, I was finding a new home in the area. I was new to the area. I did have some family here, so that definitely uh, helped. Uh, but I think uh, the challenges that you face, if you apply some of the stuff that you learn in the military, you can definitely overcome those. So uh, it is challenging. I'm not going to say it's not, but uh, my advice to anybody out there that is going to do the transition is plan ahead, and that's going to be your always your best friend. At the same time, uh, think back to what you had to revert to when you were in the military and carry those over to the civilian world and you'll be fine. Do you think that people worry too much about getting out? Do you find that there's more similarities or more differences between military life and the civilian life, even though you're working for a veteran organization? I think there's a lot of similarities. Uh, probably just the anxiety of having a lot of changes coming your way. I think that's what... Um, uh, definitely for me, it was a challenge thinking of everything. Uh, you can't think of everything, uh, you know, you can't think of the big picture, think of what do I need today, do today to uh, make it through or to find a job, to find a place. So take it one step at a time. Uh, but there are a lot of similarities, and I think uh, it could be beneficial as you transition out. You also have to remember there are fewer safety nets when you get out of the military. You know, when you're in there, there's people checking up on you, making sure you're showing up to work, making sure you're doing everything you need to do. In the civilian world, the onus is more on yourself. I mean, if you're late to work, you're probably not going to be in the same kind of trouble you were in the military. You're just not going to have a job the next day. You know uh, no, what I mean? <laughs> I, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, it all depends on your level of experience. If you have a couple of years, maybe you're worth checking in. But if you stayed in for a while and you rose to the ranks, maybe you were the one checking in. So you have a lot of those qualities that you can pull that you can carry over to the civilian world that can be uh, beneficial and helpful. I did 13 years, and it was at the end of those 13 <laughs> years that I started finally. I was the guy waking up on time and making sure everybody else was awake. And <laughs> then my right. time comes to an end, <laughs> of course, as soon as I get used to it. That's right. Now, Gerardo, of course, you are the Deputy Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation for the American Legion. What exactly does that mean? What does a Deputy Director for Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation do with the American Legion? Uh, so we have three Deputy Directors, and we each focus on a different portfolio. We have a Deputy Director for Benefits, so disability uh, claims. We also have a Deputy Director for Healthcare, so anything on the VA, healthcare, uh, enrollment, uh, any issues out there. And then my Kind of portfolio is a little diverse, meaning I deal with uh, the Department of Defense Board's uh, discharge upgrade. Somebody came in, got a little bit of trouble, and they had the ability to come and apply and try to get this uh, corrected or upgraded to something more favorable. I uh, also deal with, uh, we have satellite offices throughout the United States that deal with specific VA benefits. One, one program that uh, doesn't get a lot of mention is a pension program. Mm. It's a need-based program for wartime service uh, veterans, and the way the VA kind of distributes this benefit is they have three regional offices that uh, kind of oversee, you know, depending on what st state you live in. So we have representatives there that assist people uh, filing 
uh, the application, making sure they get the supporting documentation. Uh, so, so that's another thing uh, uh, that we do. I also deal with uh, med board cases. So this is for active duty service members that are uh, maybe uh, not fit to continue the service for they might have an injury or some type of illness and the military saying you're not fit to continue uh, based on our uh, rules uh, and then they had to go through a med board process and we assist that uh, giving them counsel it can be that can be a stressful time because now not only is this person being told that they're not fit they're not going to be continued they might have wanted to retire but they were not going to be able to based on this uh, new condition so we assist through that uh, and then we also do a little bit of the NCA, the, the National Cemetery Administration Portfolio. So anything out there dealing with uh, death benefits, uh, burial, uh, we assist uh, in that area too. And we're going to talk about that in depth now because Gerardo is actually going to be testifying tomorrow before the House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Disability Assistance and Memorial Affairs about the National Cemetery Administration. First, let's give people a little bit of a baseline of knowledge when it comes to the NCA, the Cemetery Administration. I think there are a lot of people out there who do four years, eight years, 12 years, 13 like me, and then get out and don't retire that assume that they don't really get any death benefits. That's for the career soldier, sailor, airman, marine. Is that the case? Who is eligible for benefits through the NCA? So that is not the case. Any veteran that receives an honorable discharge that served at least 24 months on active duty and, re- and separated, not necessarily retired, is eligible for NCA benefits, which would include burial at a state or national cemetery. Uh, there are also honors services that are going to be uh, performing the ceremony at, at the burial. Uh, there's also a flag presentation, and there's also a presidential memorial certificate that is presented to the family or next to kin, and obviously the perpetual care of the gravesite. You know, VA will maintain, they'll operate it, they'll make sure everything is working. Uh, they'll also get a headstone or a marker that's going to be issued through NCA. So this, anybody that has 24 months of service, got out with an honorable discharge, can qualify for Again, that's something that I know for a fact a lot of people are unaware of. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there are so many veterans who qualify for this uh, burial benefits, these death benefits, who have no clue about them? So I think part of it has to do with we talked a little bit about transition, and I think the VA and DOD have done an excellent job uh, trying to prepare people for transition. But I think their focus is on um, benefits, on jobs, uh, seeking jobs. Nobody really talks uh, really on the healthcare, and definitely not on the NCA on the cemetery side. Maybe because it's not in your mind when you're you know you came in, you did four or five years, you get out, you're maybe mid twenties. So that's you're not thinking about death, right? Mm. Uh, so, but I think as they if the veteran remains engaged with the VA. They find out that this is uh, one of their benefits they have inter- earned through their service. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is that it's not talked about enough. Uh, and maybe because it's uh, put it off, we'll talk about it at another time, you know. So I think that's part of the issue. We're speaking with Gerardo Avila, Deputy Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation at the American Legion, focusing today on the National Cemetery Administration, death benefits that are available to veterans that they may or may not be aware of. And this isn't, you know, not everybody's going to be buried at Arlington. We actually recently talked about how Arlington is running out of room. There are cemeteries all across the country that are eligible for veterans to be buried there, aren't there? So, yes, uh, if Everybody knows about Arlington, and there's different criteria. And NCA, the cemetery, VA, does not control Arlington. That is controlled by Department of Defense, and the actual Department of the Army runs Arlington. So 
Uh, it's a little separate, uh, but there are approximately 135 uh, national cemeteries that are run through NCA across the country. Not in every state, but also every state have a state veteran cemetery, and these are partnerships with the VA to try to give the veteran an option. NCA's goal is to have uh, give the veteran an option to, to be buried within 75 miles of their home. I think they estimate that 92% of all veterans across America meet that criteria. There's still 8% that maybe live outside the range. Uh, NCA is always looking to expand uh, new cemeteries, also build partnership with state and uh, tribal cemeteries to try to have 100% of the ver- uh, veterans living in America to have a, either a national or a state cemetery within 75 miles of their home. That is huge. Now, when we talk about these benefits being available to every veteran who served for 24 months, recently we've seen in the news that there are certain things, like let's take Agent Orange, certain benefits available to some veterans, not available to others. For example, the Blue Water Navy veterans or uh, caregiver benefits, which the VA Mission Act is working to address, as, as we've talked about several times. When it comes to the death benefits and the burial benefits, are those the same across the board for people who served in each generation or are there differences based on the time that you served? No, so those are the same across the board. Uh, there might be, so the 24 months is uh Post-1980, there was a change on the eligibility criteria. So those that served prior to 1980, uh, I don't believe they need to have the 24 months. That's a new requirement for 1980 moving forward. But as far as the benefits, they're all the same. There's not a different era. If you're a World War II Vietnam veteran or a current era, they're all going to be the same level of benefits across the board. That 24-month requirement sounds uh, similar to me, for example, to some of the educational benefits where there was uh, recently legislation to change this. But prior to that, if you didn't serve for, I think it was 12 months on active duty, you were not eligible for things like the GI Bill or vocational rehab. Of course, what they didn't think about was that some people are removed from service prior to reaching that benchmark because of injuries. So we had Purple Heart recipients, people wounded on the field of battle, unable to continue their military service, who then were not eligible for certain benefits. Is that something that that they've already dealt with or that they need to deal with? Do you know what the case is as far as reaching that 24-month benchmark if there's exceptions to that rule? Correct. So I think there are exceptions for that rule. I know I dealt with a little bit on uh, assisting uh, service members that had to transition out due to some type of disability. And that was one of the things, you know, they cannot receive their uh, military retirement under if they were retired and also receive their VA disability. Uh, but they have come through with uh, combat related special compensation, which allows a veteran to draw um benefits from DOD and also from the VA at the same time. There are some some rules to this, but I think most of those have been addressed uh, and they try to get the same level of benefits across so you don't have all these uh, different timelines and markers because I think that's part of the confusing part. People don't know what they uh, qualify for based on you know the date that they serve or when they got out. Uh, it can add to the confusion. That's one of those things when you speak to most veterans, Gerardo, where we tend to look at it and saying, if you have an honorable discharge, who cares if you served two months, 10 months, 12 months, 24 months? Why do you think they put that restriction on there, that 24 months in service, when there are people who have an honorable discharge, were discharged through no fault of their own, maybe at 22 months, 23 months? I think part of this is the way that things happen with legislation. 
and everything with legislation is tied into a budget, uh, you know, whether it's the NDA or the omnibus, and dates get agreed on based on budgets, and that's what kind of drives some of these dates. Uh, they agree to it, and they put a date moving forward, and then so every member can agree and eventually pass through. Uh, but I think, like I said, for the most part on the NCA side, I think we're good, but that's part of the confusion is legislation and what is agreed to in Congress. As you've already mentioned, Part of the reason that veterans don't know about this is the majority only serve one term, two terms, get out maybe mid-20s, late-20s at the latest for the average veteran. And death is certainly not something that's on your mind, uh, sometimes intentionally. You don't want to think about things like that. What do you think needs to be done to change that so that our younger veterans do consider the fact that, hey, at some point it's going to come to an end and maybe you should be looking into what preparations you need to make or at the very least making your family members aware of what your wishes might be and what might be available to you because of your service? No, this is some great point. So I think part of it, we need to tackle it at the transition point. And we mentioned a little bit that it's not the emphasis and maybe rightfully so. Who wants to talk about it? But I think a small section needs to be dedicated to at least putting the information out there. So it puts it in the back of your mind uh, for as we get older as veterans, it's important to have this conversation with our families. You know, what do we want? The biggest question or the biggest challenge that I give when a veteran dies from a next of kin is they call me and they said, look, uh, my husband, my son, they, they passed away. Uh, I, I need to know how to arrange anything. What, does, what do they qualify through NCA? So the biggest conversation you can have is have this conversation with your loved one, with your family. Let them know where your DD-214, your discharge paperwork is, because it's going to be crucial and NCA is going to want to see this to make sure that you qualify for this benefit. So I had the conversation. Uh, I'll plug in uh, NCA uh, kind of uh, new initiative. They, they have a new uh, pre-qualification or pre-need determination eligibility. So now you can actually fill out an application and NCA will tell you whether you're eligible or not, and they'll tell you what you're eligible for. So in essence, you're kind of, it doesn't guarantee you a slot. As long as there is open room in a national or state cemetery and you want to be buried there, uh, they kind of say, okay, you're eligible based on your service. So now you not only filled out this application, but hopefully you had a conversation with your loved one next to kin. So then when that day does come, they already know what you want to do. And they already already arranged in uh, they're respecting your wishes. So I think it's very important to have that conversation. I would certainly agree with that. And, you know, it's one of those things I don't want to think about it, but I have a family now and the less stress I put on them for whenever that last day and uh, the last day in the civilian uniform comes for me, I, it'll make life easier on them. We're speaking with Gerardo Avila, Deputy Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation at the American Legion, specifically about the National Cemetery Administration. And Gerardo, you're preparing to testify before the House Veterans Affairs Committee on this very issue tomorrow. First, how do you prepare for getting up in front of the House Veterans Affairs Committee, the lawmakers who have the capability to change veterans' lives with essentially the stroke of a pen? How are you preparing for your testimony and what do you plan to say to them tomorrow? So I think the biggest uh, preparation is just talking to our stakeholders out in the field because uh, we carry their message to members of Congress. So we talk to the people across America and we want to know their experience as they used NCA uh, benefits, you know, uh, whether it's good, bad. It obviously, we're not trying to highlight any negative. If they have positive stories, which most of them have been on the NCA side, we want to carry that to, over to Congress. That's what we prepare um, by telling the American Legion members uh, 
voice. What is their voice for them during this testimony? So that's the biggest thing, uh, preparation. And I think uh, what we want to share is just that, you know, the message that we have heard from across uh, our members that have used any NCA services. And like I said, most of them have been very positive from uh, actual final respects to arranging, uh, making a, s- a schedule for the burial, uh, calling the 1-800 number, uh, just finding out questions. Uh, I think that's what we want to share with them. Uh, there are some areas that we want to focus on in regards to maybe the call center. They've gone to a centralized schedule in St. Louis, Missouri, where people have to call. Uh, and then there's also an issue with headstone markers. So mm. we talked about the dates, you know, depending on when the veterans serve. So right now, anybody can be given uh, or issued an NCA uh, headstone or marker uh, for those veterans that have died from 1990 forward. Uh, anybody that died before that, if they have already a private marker, they cannot receive an NCA marker. They can mm-hmm. receive a medallion that kind of you know associates them as being a veteran, but the family does not have the option to uh, receive an NCA marker because it's already marked. And this goes back to 1990 budget. And it was part of the agreement that they made. So there's some of the issues I see, minor issues, but I think anytime we can um, even improve those minor things to make NCA more proficient and better, uh, everybody comes out uh, you know, being a winner. The National Cemetery Administration, of course, is part of the Department of Veterans Affairs. There are many veterans who, anytime they hear VA, they assume that there's going to be a long wait to get anything done. Whether you've sat at a VA hospital for four hours waiting for someone to fulfill a prescription for amoxicillin or something simple like that, or trying to get an appointment. When it comes to the National Cemetery Administration, how are they doing as far as the timelines of when people put in a request for these burials to get the information that they want, to make the plans that they need? How are they doing on that? So from what we can tell is they're doing an excellent job. Um, they release their consumer report annually. Uh, NCA always ranks mid-90s to above on all their services. Uh, from our experience talking to the people that have used um, any NCA benefits, uh, as far as burial within three to four days from the time of death to the actual um, interment or burial at the NCA cemetery. That's what we're looking at right now. Right now, the procedure calls, once a veteran passes away, uh, the family will fax in their DD-214s if they don't have this, you know, like we talked about, uh, predetermination eligibility. Mm. Uh, Once NCA confirms that this person is a veteran, they're eligible for it. Uh, now they have to call a 1-800 number where they actually schedule, and that can happen within 24 to 48 hours. So overall, what we can tell is they're doing a really great job uh, and no major issues, uh, concerns that you hear on the benefits or even on the healthcare side. What are some changes that you'd like to see as far as what the National Cemetery Administration does, whether it's something in the process, whether it's just cleaning up some of the clutter around the rules surrounding it? What would you like to see changed most? So I think also expansion, um, they talk about it being 92% of all veterans having uh, NCA or state cemetery. There's still some states that do not have a national cemetery. Mm. So I think it'd be um, great if every state can have their own national cemetery or a state cemetery so veterans can have that option, uh, you know, besides leaving their state if they, don't, if they want to be in a national cemetery. So, and NCA has opened up some new cemeteries. They just about broke uh, in Colorado. They had a new one. Uh, so, so those are some of the things that we think NCA can do a little bit better. Um, there is also some legislation where NCA is being asked to come take over some old cemeteries. Uh, Mar- I don't know if you're aware of Mar Island, which is out yes. west. 
So we've talked to uh, Ralph Parrott from Mare Island several times. On correct. Show, so yeah. now there's legislation to have that cemetery fall in, under NCA. So under the proposed legislation, NCA would come in, repair, and kind of uh, be the maintenance continued for uh, moving into the future. So our goal is why not give them a little more land and that will expand Maryland so now we can make it into an active cemetery. I don't know if NCA is willing to do that, but those are just some things that we can throw out there till we can expand the choices that veterans have when the time of need arrives. When you bring up Mare Island, that brings another question to mind. Of course, Mare Island, for those who are not familiar, is a cemetery at the first naval facility on the West Coast. Correct. Uh, it's in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, a little bit inland from there. Mare Island is also the home of several Medal of Honor recipients, granted from a period of time where the Medal of Honor was kind of the only medal that was given out. So some of them are, in fact, war heroes. Some of them uh, might not meet the criteria for the Medal of Honor today. Nonetheless, this naval facility was shut down through a BRAC round, and this cemetery essentially was not kept up. I mean, it just fell into disrepair, grave markers toppling over, overgrowth, all sorts of uh, just a really uh, discouraging and upsetting situation out there. Now a group headed by Ralph Parrott, retired Navy captain, is working to, uh, to get that fixed. And of course, the VSOs have gotten involved in that as well. Looking at that, is there any concern on either the state or national veteran cemetery level as far as the upkeep of those places, or do they tend to do a great job with making sure that the final resting place of so many veterans is what it should be when you go there? So I think this is, they do a great job of upkeeping the current uh, real estate that they're in charge of. So if this is legislation is going to pass, if it passes that they would have to take over Maryland, we see no issues whether they can do this or not. We they have, NCA has a track record uh, which proves that they can and will be able to do this. I think the interesting issue is that you mentioned it was closed during the BRAC. I think we had to do a better job during BRAC because you know BRAC is it's a cut is going to save us money by closing down some military bases. In this case, the land along with the cemetery went to the city of Vallejo, California. Uh, since the city has come under financial hardship, so they're unable to maintain the cemetery. Uh, now they're asking NCA to come in and take over the cemetery. Uh, but I think this was a Navy base. It was an active Navy base. I think DOD and whatever service is there that's going to be closing down as part of BRAC, uh, full considerations need to be given when we have an area like the cemetery. It needs to be addressed specially, uh, specifically, what are we going to do with it? Who's going to maintain it? Uh, maybe DOD should still be involved just in the cemetery piece of it. So it's not sort of abandoning it, you know, because right. it, it's sacred ground. You mentioned the Medal of Honor uh, recipients. And also, I believe Francis Scott Key's daughter or... One of Francis Scott Key's daughters. There were some Russian sailors who correct. died while fighting a fire in San Francisco. And actually, the Russian government came over and made sure that their graves were taken care of, the Russian consulate. I think maybe as part of BRAC, you know, if we have an uh, area like sensitive like this, a sacred ground, uh, DOD needs to maintain uh, control of that and they can give the rest of the land to the city or however they're going to state. But somebody within DOD, VA, needs to maintain accountability and control of that uh, cemetery. 
it makes you wonder how many other situations like Mare Island there are out there that there isn't a Ralph Parrot out there to to bring attention to. How many other bases that were closed down, small, older bases from you know over a century ago that no one's thought about, no Absol- one who's who's alive ever served there. You Absolutely, know? yeah. One of those concerns. Well, that's a concern that's addressed by a number of people, including the American Legion and Mr. Gerardo Avila, their Deputy Director for Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation, has been our guest here on the morning briefing. Gerardo, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell me if people want to find out more about the programs that you're involved in, more about the great work that the Legion is doing on behalf of veterans, not just their members, where do they go to look up all that good info? And they could always go to our website, www.legion.org, uh, and that'll give you access to any of the programs. It'll also give you some point of contact phone numbers. Uh, and I'll throw my email out there, uh, gavila at legion.org. Send me an email if you have a question in regards to any NCA benefits, okay? You're listening to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and we will be back right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. That's our slogan because it's what we do. Each and every member of our team is a veteran themselves, so they know the kind of things that veterans want to know. They find the kind of things that veterans need to know to make sure that you are living your best veteran life. Also, they're out there looking for just the cool stuff that we think you'd like to know about. Check out ConnectingVets.com every day. And, of course, follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little click of your mouse or tap on your phone, and you will be living your best veteran life with all the great information, news, and so on coming out of the Connecting Vets verse. Speaking of that cool stuff that we think you'd like to know about, on Memorial Day, I saw a social media posting from a previous guest on the show. You may remember Tim Kennedy. Yes, of course you do. Army Green Beret, former UFC fighter, and of course, just an open, honest, interesting guy. Most recently talked to us about waterboarding himself on social media, which was a fascinating conversation. But anyway, his social media post directed me to check out a video of a film made by a friend of his. Of course, it wasn't directly to me, although I I always look at social media that way. So I clicked on the link, and I watched a short film called Almost Home, and after watching it, Well, I had to speak to the guy who made it. So I found Mr. B.J. Golnick, reached out to him, and he joins us now on The Morning Briefing. B.J., good morning. How are you today? I am doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing very well. Of course, the movie Almost Home, the short film that you made, we're going to talk about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about you. B.J. Golnick, who made this amazing short film that really kind of encapsulates what a lot of veterans uh, have gone through, and everybody that I know has seen it has spoken very highly of how you put it together. But you are actually not a veteran yourself, are you? No, sir, I'm not. I'm not. I, uh, I, I do come from a, a military family. My brother, in fact... Um, was in the Navy. He's a Naval officer, my father, uh, for years. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've kind of been bred into it, although I never, I never joined myself. I always got, it was kind of a two way street for me. And I was like, you know what? I'm a far better storyteller than I am a, uh, uh, <laughs> than someone that stories are told about. 
Well, what is that like growing up in a family like that? We have a brother who, as you said, went into the world's finest Navy, which means I already like him a little bit, although he is an officer, so I'm going to temper that like for, for my fellow <laughs> yeah, sailor there. But being, uh, you know, the, the, the brother in a family of someone who's serving, and of course you said your dad's serving, your relatives, uh, what was that experience like for you uh, growing up and seeing that? And then, of course, uh, when you're seeing your brother go in. Uh, it was just the most, um, it, it was, I, I want to say, kind of intense for me because it was a lot of emotional uh, connection to um, to everything that the, that the military stands for. Um, I, was, I was taught by my father at an early age about honor and duty above, above everything else. Um, and uh, we, we, we had a great relationship with, uh, with our dad. He was a very loving father. But he was also, you know, he was a mentor, and he taught us everything that we needed to know. And I think a lot of that was instilled in him from uh, his time serving and my brother's time serving. Um, and, and, you know, when, when my brother went in, uh, it was just natural. I mean, I remember us going to Fleet Week. We grew up in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Port Everglades there. We always had Fleet, Fleet Week and, and the Air and Sea Show when we were kids. And I just knew from a very early age that that was something that my brother was going to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was uh, it, it was just uh, it was it was instilled in me from an early age, and and uh, the values of the military, the values of our service members, uh, is just something that I've always been fascinated with, and I find uh, above all else, uh, just just incredible. Now, as you are the director of Almost Home, people can probably guess that you went into uh, the visual arts medium, basically, that industry. So just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your movement into that. And I believe that Tim Kennedy was, uh, was putting that out over social media because you'd actually worked with him before on projects like television shows. So what's that part of your journey been like? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to school at University of Miami um, and I, I had always wanted to do feature films, which is kind of where this, uh, you know, how, how this short film came about. But the, uh, what I ended up falling into was uh, the documentary world uh, and doing uh, docu-style programming and stuff for National Geographic, Animal Planet, History Channel, Discovery Channel, um, etc. So uh, after years of busting my ass uh, uh, as a, uh, you know, a production assistant, etc., I, I started in that industry from the, the very beginning. Uh, I started as a, uh, as, a, as a production assistant, lowest level you could possibly start at, and then kind of worked my way up. So over 10 years, um, I uh, started to, to uh, direct and uh, shoot these television shows. Um, so uh, most recently, I worked with Tim on Hunting Hitler, which uh, is on History Channel. Right, a fascinating and, show where they go to South America and uh, find these vestiges of the Nazis who left after World War II and moved down there, and uh, many of them still have uh, relatives living today down there, and really just a fascinating show. Thank you very much. Yeah, correct. It, it, it's just, it, it's, it was an incredible subject matter, um, and I like to, you know, the title itself kind of, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a bold title, Hunting Hitler, but at the same time, really tracing the escape routes of Nazi, uh, ex-Nazi uh, war criminals all throughout Central and South America, uh, and people really don't realize this wasn't hundreds of Nazis. This wasn't, you know, 50 or so Nazis. This was thousands of Nazis that escaped uh, at, at the end of World War II, and they weren't just the, you know, these weren't, these weren't, uh, these weren't just soldiers, and uh, they ended up living out their lives and, uh, and, 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 you know, kind of leading normal lives after the end of World War II at, in, in Central and South America. 
Right. Many were never brought to justice. There are towns down there where everybody's blonde-haired and blue-eyed in South America. There are places oh where God, yeah. German is still the primary language spoken. So this is something that, I mean, yeah, 70 years ago we're talking, 70 years plus now when we talk about the end of World War II, but uh, something that's really a fascinating thing that you and Tim and the rest of the crew at Hunting Hitler have really been shining a spotlight on. Now, your, your interactions with him through that show, as far as your profession, was that really kind of your first interaction with the military, or were there other things with the military and veteran community that you'd worked on prior? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the film, uh, the actual, actually the short film, um, I had done uh, uh, a couple years back, um, and we had it running through a festival circuit. So before I met Tim um, and, uh, and his interaction with the show, yeah, I've, I've, oh, I've still been fascinated with filming that. We did, uh, I did a series um, called JFK Declassified that was also on History Channel uh, with Bob Bear, uh, who was CIA ex-CIA operative, um, and then I got to interact with guys like uh, Marty Scovland, who uh, also was Green Beret, uh, SF dude, um, and he was on that series. And then uh, even before that, I've done series, uh, there was a, a, a series on History Channel we did called uh, Sniper, Anatomy of a Kill, where we did all of the uh, pretty incredible stories of, of, of uh, uh, sniper movements throughout history, not just modern time that was uh, from Vietnam uh, to, to, to present, uh, Korea as well. Um, and that was a great series that aired, I think in 2010 or 12. I seem to recall um, that. Did that, did that have an episode with uh, Gunny Hathcock from the Marine Corps shooting yes, a sniper did. through his, uh, through actually his shooting him through his scope? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sure did. Yeah. I remember yeah, that. That, show. Was an, that was a good show. <laughs> and, and that, and that, and that was, yeah, it was great, man. And that was a really, really fascinating show to work on because we had to, you know, we were doing the recreations, of those events and, uh, you know, not having massive Hollywood budgets to, to do recreations and to do them well. I think, I think it, I think it worked out and I think, uh, it, it was tough, tough to do, but we did, a, we did a pretty fine job at it. We're speaking with BJ Golnick. BJ is a filmmaker. He's a director. He's a photographer. He's doing some really uh, great work in the visual mediums, all of them, from what I've seen, from looking around his website and his social media there. And we're speaking to him specifically about a movie that I first saw this past Memorial Day after it was shared out over social media by former guest and friend of the show, Tim Kennedy. And that is the short film Almost Home. So, BJ, uh, let's talk a little bit about that film and, and how long uh, that idea was in your head for telling the story of, uh, of what takes place within the short film. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so there was, there was um, it actually stemmed from uh, hearing about a legend. Um, there was a story that I had read online uh, about a, uh, a Marine Corps uh, sergeant who comes back uh, from war and he goes to deliver, uh, the news that, uh, a man's son has died, uh, and he's visiting someone in the hospital. He's visiting a father in the hospital. And, uh, when he, he gets there, basically you find out that the, that the man that he's delivering, uh, this horrible news to, um, is the man whose son, uh, actually died. Um, but, it, but, it, but he didn't know that at the time. So I heard, I heard this legend and, uh, I said, you know what, this is such an incredible story. I'm going to modernize it. I'm going to modernize this and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it into a film. Um, and that the idea had been floating around for months. I, I was like, you know, how do I, how do I, uh, how am I going to be able to accomplish this? Could I just get away with doing this again? Cause it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, you don't have, when you're going to do a film like this, it's not like someone says, Hey, you know what, you're going to do a short film. There's a, uh, totally a market for this 
you know, where you're going to be able to make your money back. No way. Like there's, that absolutely does not happen. So when you go to do a short film, you know, you're going to do this film and that's pretty much going to be the life of it. Um, and, uh, it's not going to get massive distribution anywhere. Nothing like you're not going to get, uh, your budget back. You're, you're going to do a short film because you want to do that short film because you love to do that short film because you can't do anything else besides do that short film. Um, so, uh, I was trying to figure out the best way to do it for the, you know, the, the smallest amount of money possible. Um, but it was just, it was a story that I was like, you know, I have to, this has to be out there. I have to tell this. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep without getting this thing made. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it took months to kind of write a screenplay that was going to be doable with the budget that we had and all that stuff. When it came to, you know, the desire to make it, did it come from just being a storyteller and finding that story that was just, uh, you know, so uh, it pushed you to tell it? Or do you think that there was a combination of that and the fact that you do have, you know, a father and brother who served and that respect for the military lifestyle? Uh, What was the driving force behind making you find a way to get this done? Um, For me, for me, it it, it was a combination of all. Uh, It was the fact that I've, I've been so connected and so close to the military my entire life. Um, and it was, it, it was the fact that this is, this is a, I, I feel like human beings, you see the truest form of human beings in combat. And, and by that, I mean the good and the bad. You see the, the realist. Um, when someone's life is on the line, uh, that's when their true character and who they are will emerge, I think, I believe. And that's why I've always been so connected to uh, war films, uh, because I, I just, I, 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 war films and, and, and war stories, I just feel like there is no better uh, true version of what a human being is capable of. It certainly is a short film, and we're speaking to the director of Almost Home, filmmaker B.J. Golnick, that really uh, touches on some things. I mean, being someone who has deployed over there, there are some recognizable things, you know, that just the, the, the chatter and the patter between the, uh, uh, the two men who are serving over there. You know, when you have the limitations that you had on, on budget and certainly on location, I'm imagining it, it wasn't possible to go over to Iraq or Afghanistan to shoot on location over there, but how, how difficult is it to find a way to make it feel you know, to feel uh, legit, as legit as it does in your final product. Was that a difficult process? Uh, absolutely. So, so for me, I, I, I grew up with so many guys that, that had deployed, that, that were in the military, guys that were Marines. Um, and what it came down to was what you were talking about, the chatter and the banter between the two guys. When it came down to writing that stuff, I, um, I basically I took the route of this is the same that we talk about all the time. You know, to, to, I feel like to keep dialogue and, and, and things like that real, you have, to, you have to use a part of yourself. You have to use conversations that you've, you've actually had in the past. Um, and uh, even though I personally have never served, a majority of my friends, a majority of the guys that I grew up with all have, and we're all the same, you know. Um, so that stuff was very easy for me. That was setting up, you know, a, a dialogue that I would, that I would, if I would, it didn't matter if I was sitting in uh, against a hillside in Afghanistan or if we were sitting at a beach bar in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, it, we, we would still be having the same conversations. It's just the settings would change. Um, so I think a lot of people, uh, when they're going to do films like that, when they're going to do uh, films about combat, they, they lose sight of that, that this is still, you know, these are still normal human beings. These are still just like you and your buddies having a conversation. 
Um, and then the military is also, so as much as I, as much as I, um, revere the military and, and the guys who serve, they're, they're not an easy community to please. Um, so for me going into this film, I knew no matter what I was going to make this as accurate as I possibly could again with the budget that I had in, in, in place. Um, so there was there, but, but, but above all else, like that's why I made sure all my guys that were, um, in the Marines, I made sure and I hit them all up and I said, Hey, do you see these medals on his service alphas? Um, tell me exactly. This is the type of guy I would give them the situation. This is the type of guy, this is the scenario. This is where he would be in Afghanistan, et cetera. And then I would say, what would his medals look like? What kind of shoes was he wearing? Uh, these service alphas were these in commission in, in, in 2009, uh, were, you know, uh, or, 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 you know, all that stuff. Like I, I, I went in, to exact detail as much as I could, the weapons that the guys were carrying, their kits. Like, I don't know if you know this, but a loadout, I'm sure you do, but a loadout um, for somebody who was in Afghanistan at the time period that I was, that I was uh, filming, it's not a cheap thing, you know, to, to get <laughs> correct, you know, to get plate carriers and to get the helmets that they were using and to get, you know, uh, the, the boots that an SF guy is going to wear. Like, these are all things that came into my brain. Like, I was not only, you know, I, not only did I direct and, and produce this, I was the costumer. I was the props guy. I was, you know, <laughs> so I was doing everything I could because I didn't really trust anyone that I could hire for the money that I had to do it correctly. So I was making sure that every detail as best as I possibly could was, was correct. Um, and when you have, when you're doing a low budget film, it's borderline impossible. So you, you, you do whatever you can. I mean, I had, again, I borrowed, had to borrow weapons from guys that I knew were SF. I uh, had to, um, you know, the, the, the boots I was researching online. I was asking guys like, okay, you know, I know you guys have your, your issues, but I'd never seen an SF guy wear issue boots. So what are you guys, what boots do you guys trust with your lives? Because at the end of the day, that's like the most important thing to a lot of these guys is making sure their feet are taken care of because they're on their feet all the time. Um, so like, these were all things. It wasn't just about the, the, the story. It wasn't just about going, all right, let me, let me, let me tell this awesome story. Like, all right, now I've got to tell this awesome story and I've got to make it as accurate as possible. And you did a good job at that. And particularly with the budget limitations, I mean, we've spoken with Dale Dye, who was kind of the guy who went to Hollywood as a, a retired Marine, first got hired on by Oliver Stone for Platoon. He was the guy who made Platoon uh, have a sense of yep. realism to it. I mean, he's, he's made a career out of it, and you had to do it all on your own to get this kind of passion project made. And, and as you said, the military and veterans are often uh, the biggest critics of anything that has to yes. do with us, any film that tries to represent us or anything like that. Yes. So it sounds like you had some worry about how they might react to it. Tell me about the response that you've gotten from people. You know, obviously, Tim Kennedy liked it because he posted it on social media on Memorial Day. What's some of the other feedback that you've gotten from the military and veteran community? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, am, I am absolutely blown away um, by the response. If the military... If the guys that are that are that are that I made this film for, that I made this film about, if they care about it and they're saying this is good, that is absolutely the only thing I care about, and that's kind of what's happened. Um, a guy who who really, um, I guess, forced me <laughs> to release this out there. It was doing really well. It went to and did a film festival circuit. So if you do a short film, that's basically the only outlet you have. You try and enter it into as many film festival uh, festivals as you can. And you start from the big ones to the little ones. Uh, and there's a whole another world that I really wasn't even, that, I, that I'm not into or anything like that. But we did that to try and see if we could generate some traction with it. Because again, there's no real, you know, there's no real way to, 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 
to, to, to get the film out there besides that. So then uh, we did that for a, about a year. We had to do its full film festival run. And then I released it uh, to just people that I, that I wanted them to see it, you know, like so guys that I met. So there was a guy named Mike Simpson, uh, who is a uh, SF dude uh, and a doctor. Um, and he was also on Hunting Hitler with me. And Mike was just, I showed Mike the film and he said, okay, you got to get this out there. Like you got to, you got to release it online. Enough is enough. Like, yeah, okay. You did the film festival circuit thing. That's cool. But get it out there because there's a lot of guys that need to see this. And, uh, I was like, okay. All right. And he's like, you know, how do you propose? And this, this just recently happened. I mean, this was, he said, he said, I want, I want to post it for Memorial day. Will you release it? Uh, so that I can view it without a password and, and I can share it with people. And I said, uh, Okay, man. Yeah, sure. I'll do that. So I was like, you know, last minute kind of freaking out, trying to be like, all right, is there anything else I need to change in the film or update it? And he goes, no, 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 just give me the film. Like, just release it. Just do it. And I, and I said, okay, fine, fine. So we released it on Memorial Day. And then uh, Mike, Mike was really the driving force behind that to get it out there. And then Tim, of course, I showed it to Tim years ago. And then Tim saw that I released it. He was like, okay, I got, I'm going to post about it as well. Um, and uh, yeah, man. And then, and then the feedback has just been incredible. I've been getting the most beautiful messages from guys that the film truly touched, um, which has absolutely is the only reason we did this film and is exactly what I was praying would happen. Um, and these are guys in the military that, that are, uh, that, that are, that have come back from combat that have lost friends that have, um, been dealing with, uh, PTSD that have been dealing with substance abuse, uh, from that PTSD that are truly, that, that care, that, 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 that said this film, this film, people need to see this. Guys like me need to see this. And uh, it's been the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. We're speaking to the filmmaker behind the short film Almost Home, which uh, I cannot recommend highly enough. And it's available for viewing, as he just said, online for free. He is BJ Golnick, comes from a military family, did this film. And BJ, I think it speaks to the power of, well, the Internet, the fact that it was able to make it here to me and you were able to get this out there. Whereas in the past, short films were kind of in the domicile of the film nerd and not too many other people. How happy are you that you now have the technical ability, eventually, uh, as you did, to get it out to that wider audience and have more people see it oh yeah i mean it's it's absolutely incredible there there is no in the past there was no way for anyone to see your work if you were doing a short film and now that the with the advent of the internet and the advent of social media it is it's just a whole new gateway to reach an audience that you would have never been able to connect with and it's also an industry that you work in that used to be a little bit closed off and more difficult to get into. But with everyone having a, a fairly decent camera now on their phone uh, and having editing uh, software be much more readily available, let me ask you, with so many veterans looking for a job that speaks to them, is the industry of television, film, and the media arts that you work in, is that one that you would recommend veterans who are interested in trying to find a way to express themselves look into? 100%, especially, let, let me tell you this, especially in the type of, of programming that I that is kind of my day job. So ultimately for me, the best thing is, is to, to make films, to do uh, feature films, et cetera. But what I love doing as well is really doing docu-style programming that is shot around the world. So doing shows that are for National Geographic or Discovery Channel that kind of puts us back into the elements. And the truest, this is, this is the truest statement I can, the guys that I bring out into the field with me. Um, we are like, I'm not, you know, we are, we are like a military unit. So how we operate is very, 
very similar to how uh, you would operate in the military. So the best guys I've ever worked with in, in, in the world, in the field, were vets. Um, they just get it. Uh, it's one of those situations where the guys you trust to be out there uh, in the middle of uh, Namibia uh, or the guys you trust to be out there in, with you uh, in Kenya, these are guys that have to have experience with, number one, international travel. They have to have experience with um, understanding, uh, 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 you know, orders and, and, and how, how, it, uh, how, how, how things need to run in order to get the best product possible. Um, but especially shows like that, like, um, like, like all the shows where you're really in, in some of the farthest reaches of the planet. Um, I think that's why I've also connected to so many military guys. It's like, those are the guys that I want with me out in the field. Those are the guys that I, that I trust to be like, okay, hell breaks loose. We get pulled over by a a couple of 15 year olds with AK 47s. And they say they're set they've set up a roadblock in, uh, in in the, uh, in the Kenyan border. And it's like, all right, who are the guys you want with you? You know, who are the guys that are going to be able to maneuver that situation and get everyone out safely? You know, these are guys that are all ex-military. And those are, those are really the guys that I love to be with. Well, certainly makes sense. And your respect and admiration for those who've served uh, truly shows through in the film Almost Home. We've been speaking with the filmmaker who directed that, created it, and also has worked on many incredible TV projects like Hunting Hitler, a personal favorite of mine, BJ Golnick. Now, BJ couple of things that I want to ask you. First, if people want to find out more about your work, where do they go to do that? And also, if they're interested in seeing Almost Home, is there a place that they can check that out online? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, so Almost Home is uh, on Vimeo. Um, we decided to release it on that platform because it's really the best um, platform to showcase you know, your work visually. Um, uh, so it's on video, Vimeo. The link is Almost Home. Um, and, uh, then also my website is, uh, com. That's, uh, where I'm, where I try and keep up with a lot of that stuff, but also I have a Vimeo, uh, profile as well. Uh, and then on Instagram is the most current. So that's at BJ Golnick. That's where I post the, you know, basically all of everything that I'm doing that I'm working on. And that's kind of like more of a behind the scenes thing I'm about to head out. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be heading out to do a, a, an animal a show for animal planet soon. So, uh, That'll be uh, some pretty interesting stuff um, in uh, some pretty interesting parts of the world. Well, it absolutely sounds like it. And having checked out his social media and website, I can tell you that BJ Golnick's stuff that he's putting out there is fantastic. And you should definitely check it out and definitely find Almost Home, which is available on video. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.